0: Hey, Door of Hope Northeast. It's Cameron. It's really good to be with you as we uh, continue on in our series through First John. Um, to start, I, I wanted to raise an issue. Um, see if you agree. But it seems to me that uh, in American culture at large, uh, even even in a city like Portland, um, there's still kind of kind of a surprising degree to which Jesus is still sort of sort of a liked or appreciated figure um, it's not uncommon to hear people say things like oh like jesus jesus is cool or i like jesus or um, i'm into jesus i'm at least interested in him in some sense usually that's followed up with but but i uh i don't like his disciples or uh but i man, i have a big problem with the church or uh but i i see people misrepresenting him or or, or whatever that seemed to be a pretty common sentiment um, so so Jesus still there's still room for for people to like Jesus right now it seems but but even with that there are plenty of people uh, who take take issue with Jesus's moral vision uh, for for a number of reasons um, and even you if you're a follower of Jesus you may have particular subjects or areas uh, within his kind of broader moral teaching that um, that just don't sit well with you. And, and one of the major themes that I see uh, is the thought that, that um, Jesus and the New Testament seem somewhat arbitrary um, to some. And by, th- by that, I mean, like we understand obviously why Jesus and his kingdom have to be set against something like murder. Um. But why <laughs> do they need to be set against something like uh, insignificant, small acts of lying? You know what I mean. Something like that. Um. Doesn't Jesus have more important things to care about than these sort of like little, minute acts of moral policing? Um. And this matters for us, even as not only for those outside of, of a relationship with Jesus, considering one. Uh, they need to get this sorted out. Uh, but for us who who are followers of Jesus, uh, if we don't trust that that he actually has a coherent, uh, rational, trustworthy, um, good moral vision that's actually rooted in his in the deep, perfect divine wisdom of God, in truthfulness, in goodness, in beauty, in love, then then even as Jesus followers, Uh, We are set up to be, you know, at best, um, the kind of joyless disciples who are honestly regularly, like, embarrassed or put off by the one we claim to follow. Um, And this is no way to live uh, a life of the kind of joyful flourishing that Jesus wants for us, obviously. I think we would all see that as obvious. Um, So I think today's passage is going to help us find a little bit of peace as we, as we wrestle through um, that question. And that's not the only thing this passage talks about, but it, it, it's significant here. So let's just jump in. We pick up in verse 11 of chapter 3, uh, where John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And this is, of course, the first time that John has brought this idea of loving one another up. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this has been the continual refrain, love for uh, one another, the brother and the sister in, in the church community. Um, and you've probably begun to sense it. Scholars describe the structure of John sometimes as almost like a spiral. It doesn't have a neat sort of logical argument, but he just keeps returning again and again to the same sort of few themes yeah, to, to, to keep just looking at them from different angles and to reinforce them. Um, and of course, this is a theme that's come up many times, and he's gonna give us another angle on why uh, this this idea of loving one another is so deeply important for us as Christians. Because of course, it was at the heart of Jesus' teaching as well. We've, we've talked about this multiple times already, but the great commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor. So here we are again. Um, but now he's, he's gonna continue a theme from from last week or the last couple weeks as well, in that, he, remember, he's kind of put forward this idea of these two families that are kind of diametrically opposed to one another. We've got the family of God that Jesus has allowed any and everyone, anyone and everyone to be welcomed into as children uh, through the work of Jesus on the cross and trusting him and, and giving your life to him. Um, And then there's the children of the evil one, or the the children of the devil, uh, which is language that John uses, which are those who are set against uh, Jesus and his kingdom and his family. Um, And so John is continuing to work in this kind of dualistic system here. There's these two families kind of pressing people. Which one are you actually really a part of? Uh, And specifically, which one, readers, are these people who are trying to deceive you a part of? What does the fruit of their life indicate is what's behind this? So John references the, the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis 4, which is uh, a, a story of, of profound significance. You should go and read it uh, if you have time to kind of do a little bit more digging in and reflecting this week. Um, but in that story, uh, we see uh, these two brothers who are giving offerings to God, um, and they're the, they're the first children of, of Adam and Eve, the, the first humans. And. Um, and, and in this process, um, you know, actually the book of Hebrews and the New Testament helps us understand a little bit more of what was going on, but uh, Cain did not give his offering to the Lord um, out of the same faithful posture that Abel did, um, and thus the Lord accepted Abel's sacrifice, not Cain's. And Cain was furious, he experienced anger and deep jealousy over the fact that his brother's his brother's sacrifice was accepted. His offering was accepted, um, and God, God God saw this in Genesis four, and warned him against nurturing that anger. But of course, Cain Cain gives into it and kills his brother. It's the Bible's first murder. And it's, it's no coincidence that this is the first story that follows on the heels uh, of, of Adam and Eve being banished from the garden after they've given themselves over to, to sin and over to um, a life of defining good and evil for themselves over against what God has revealed. Um, so John uses this story. He he talks of of Cain and he says he's of the evil one. So um, he's using Cain as an example of of the life of the family that's set apart from God. Cain is prototypical uh, in some ways. Uh, He's of the evil one. He's a child of Satan, to use John's ongoing metaphor. Um, And he reflected his father, Satan, in that sense by indulging his anger that ultimately gave way to the murdering of his brother. We also see here that Cain was a prototype of the world. We've already talked about this concept of the world, not as the planet as a whole or something like that, but as, as the, the kind of human culture um, apart from God's influence, kind of human systems set up in opposition to God, uh, is the sense in which John uses it. And he's t- prototypical of the world because that's why John goes into this. And you know that the world is going to hate you. Cain is is, is showing what the world is like here. Um, and we shouldn't be surprised, uh, when it hates the people of God. Um, I just want to pause for that first, first half of verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So right there is an example of what we were talking about a minute ago. We sort of go okay, but but really, like I, I know what a murderer is, uh, and and uh, and I'm against it, I'm against murdering. Uh, but anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Are you kidding me, John? What are you talking about? But of course, um, this echoes closely uh, Jesus' own words on the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, where he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool.'" will be liable to the fire of hell. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. So John is not pulling this teaching out of out of thin air. This is, once again, one of Jesus' core sayings. The Sermon on the Mount is kind of that that key teaching that lays out the ethics of life in the kingdom of God. it's been a while since you've read the Sermon on the Mount, coincidentally, go read it again. Uh, go study it again. Get a few people together and, and, and work your way through it. Does this sound overly harsh or arbitrary to you? Like, are you asking, does, does, why is Jesus so dead set on opposing seemingly harmless sins, like harboring anger or, or, or insulting your, your friend? Why? It, it reminds me of this idea of weeding. Like, our my, my wife and I, Susanna, we've just kind of decided to get serious about trying to keep our lawn Um like trying to cut down on weeds, essentially. We've just got mostly weed yard uh, that we've, you know, put half energy into uh, frequently and it ends up just being a mess. And so we decide, okay, this summer we're getting serious. Like with weeding, um, weeding the yard when weeds are small and weak, um, it prevents them, A, from growing deeper roots that are harder to get out, um, it, keeps them from being bigger eyesores, from, from doing less of the kind of damage that at least what we perceive as damage in the yard. Um, and it keeps them from spreading, from multiplying. But Jesus is doing this sort of weeding work in the human heart. Um, and I, I, I hope you'll come to see that um, Jesus being passionately set against sin, even the smallest forms of it, is the fruit of his endless love for both the one committing the sin and the one being sinned against. He doesn't want it to grow deeper. He doesn't want it to multiply. He doesn't want it to do more damage to you or to the one that you're going to hurt. So I want to just take an example of lust. Um, uh, This is one of the other uh, uh, subjects that Jesus speaks very similarly about in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where again, he's laying out the kingdom ethics of his people. Um, to be honest, it's harder to find like, a, a set of causes more widely celebrated and agreed um, to be monstrous and evil um, than sexual sins, and like human tra- sex trafficking, uh, rape, or something like pedophilia. Um, these have wide-ranging coalitions of people from all kinds of backgrounds who would say, yes, these things are horrific evils that need to be stopped um if you're if you have at all developed like a mature moral compass of of any kind um then your heart will be devastated by these things and you will want them rooted out of your world outright um but 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 though we're all born with sin i don't believe anyone begins their life with a desire to become a sex trafficker for example um, the, the people who commit these monstrous acts, um, that they often do so as a result of a thousand little choices made along the way, a thousand little decisions to indulge seemingly small, private desires that are easy to justify, that that seemingly affect no one else, but but the, a lifetime of indulging sin, um, it sees that sin grow. And grow and grow and and leave the boxes that we try to contain it in until we find ourselves doing things that we never would have thought possible not long before Um, so I, I don't think that Jesus is a moral scold when he says you've heard it said don't commit adultery but I say to you if you even look at a woman lustfully you've committed adultery in your heart this isn't moral scolding Um, And so often we misunderstand Jesus' heart for a teaching like that. He wants genuine justice and peace far more than we do. That's the issue. And He is set on confronting even the most minuscule seeming sins of the heart because He knows that ultimately any of it allowed to remain is bad news for the world that He loves. That He loves. Jesus does not define sin as such because he's arbitrary, or weird, or uh, Disconnected from the reality of life. It's because he sees more clearly than we do and he loves more deeply than we do Um, I hope you'll come to believe that So John is taking an argument from an obvious case like look the one who would murder, someone like Cain, the murderer is, is obviously not from God or filled with the spirit or possessing eternal life. But don't you know that hatred is actually the same? Hatred is the same. So he's taking this obvious example and applying it to a, to a less obvious example. Now he's going to move from an example of someone from the family of the evil one to now the family of God. And what better example is there than Jesus himself? Verses 16 through 18, he says, look, verse 16, by this, we know that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the contrast couldn't be more stark. He's, he's called us to do the opposite of what Cain has done, the opposite of murder and the opposite of harboring hatred. The opposite of taking life is to give your life for someone else. Um, we ought to be those who give or lay down our lives instead. This is a powerful contrast. And this is what Jesus did for us, of course. And thus, it's the motivation for how we ought to live and treat others as his family, as his image bearers. And so, once again, um, Jesus is is going to take... Uh, to take, take an issue and he's going to drive it down into, a re, into really practical terms. Um, so if anyone, he says, verse 17, has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? So we're applying the previous verse now. We ought to lay down our lives. And one example, just one example of doing this is to meet the material needs of others when we're able If you have the goods and you see a brother in need, come on," he says. If we refuse to do this, it's another evidence to John that God's love is not sincerely in us. Um, And interestingly, this is a little language nerd thing. He transitions from the plural, our brothers, in verse 16, to the singular, his brother, in verse 17. And this is significant. Uh, John Stott pointed this out. It's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity, he says, with a capital H, than to love individual men and women. He's quoting another commentator here. This reminds me of, uh, in, in the Russian novel, The Brothers Karamazov, one of the characters quotes a doctor he used to know. He says this, he says, I love mankind, he'd say, but I'm amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. That is individually as, as separate persons. In my dreams, he said, I, I often went so far to, th- to think passionately of serving mankind. And it may be would, would really have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary. And yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for even two days. This I know from experience. As soon as someone is there close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem, restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One, because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me, he said. On the other hand, it has always happened that the more I hate people individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity as a whole. There is something so profound about that. It's easy to talk about love in the abstract But when the moment comes to to show love to to an individual in the moment, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's harder than talking about love in abstract terms. But even this idea of caring for the material needs of your brother or sister, this is a consistent biblical picture of genuine love. Back in Deuteronomy uh, 15, he said, uh, preparing the people for the entry uh, into the land, Moses writes, if any among you... Uh, If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him, lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. It's an Old Testament example. In the New Testament, James says something remarkably similar to the passage we're saying here. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So this is a prototypical example of what it means to love. To lay down your life for others is to see a need and to meet it, to meet it. And then John summarizes his point here for what it looks like to to live in the pattern of Jesus, the life of the family of God. He says, little children, again, he's leaning in close. He's drawing them near and he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth love truly, not just in words. Don't just talk about loving, but may it be the actual fruit of your life. And remember that so much of what the false teachers John is warning against were about was this sort of disincarnated, overly spiritualized expression of Christianity that probably denied Jesus' incarnation. Uh, in actual human flesh and over their faith to the point that they refused obedience to Jesus and they refused to put their faith into genuine, tangible, real-world action. John is writing against that. Genuine Christianity involves a love for a neighbor motivated by the great love that Jesus has shown us, expressed in practical ways in our actual lives in a Christianity that doesn't strive to both rightly understand how Jesus calls us to love our brothers and sisters, um, and then put that understanding to work, is not the kind of Jesus that the apostles declared. It's something else. It's something else. And in my uh, Door of Hope book club, we've been reading uh, Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise, which is really just a, a historical survey of the ways in which uh, the, the American church has been complicit with racism throughout its history. It's a heartbreaking book. It, it's, it's powerful. It's, it's, I commend it to you, but it's sad. And it has countless examples of Christians failing to love their black brothers and sisters by both horrifically misunderstanding what God has demanded of them, and sometimes even by by understanding, but by letting economic interests or social pressures or whatever else dissuade them from from obedience. And uh, the book constantly forces you to look at your own life, my own life, our own church, and see where are we doing the same thing here. Um, so it's it's a it's a case study in the necessity of learning to love in word and in deed. In the heart and expressed through action. But John, if you notice, John has hard words for us. But these these texts each kind of include a a, a moment of reassurance, where again John, John wants to to again little children draw draw his readers close and give them assurance of the gospel, even. And so he does that in the last verses 19 through 24 here. And we'll end with this. John moves to try to reaffirm the genuine faith of his followers. He wants to give them reasons for having confidence that they are truly in the fold of Jesus. And even that God is going to listen to their prayers. So verse 19, by this, so so he's talking about what's come before, by, by the act of showing tangible love, we get to see uh, that, that, that our hearts are reassured, um, in the sincerity of our relationship with Jesus. So, believers can draw assurance from the fact that they have in fact shown love to their brothers and sisters in tangible ways. If these people are saying, hey, you don't have the real faith. He says, no, look at the way you care for one another and love one another. And door of hope, I would say you've been doing this beautifully in the age of the coronavirus. And we're going to have more opportunities, I'm sure, even just within our body uh, to meet physical needs as the economy continues to tailspin. People continue to lose work. Um, But you've been doing that. And it's been wonderful to see. Verse 20 and 21, he says, but look, God is greater than... Our heart, he says, even if our heart's condemn us, God is greater than our heart. So, so you might do that and go. You still have the racked with insecurity and doubt. He says, look, God is even greater than that insecurity and doubt in your heart. He knows everything, beloved. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before the Lord. And I think here what he's saying is, look, you can remember the promises of the gospel, what John's already mentioned, our advocate and atoning sacrifice, Jesus, who laid down his life to save us from our sin. When our heart is, is, is burdened, we feel downtrodden, he is greater, and what he declares over us is more significant than what we're feeling in the given moment. That's important. And then verses 22 and 23, it's another piece is that they've kept the commandments of God. This is obviously related to what came before, but he's, he then names it, namely to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Um, doesn't that sum it up? To believe in him, to throw your faith onto Jesus for salvation and to love one another. That's the commandment, according to John. And then finally, verse 24, trusting that the Holy Spirit will that led them to the truth of the gospel remains in them, that the Spirit of God has been poured out. And he's going to be a reminder to us of the truth to both John's readers and, I believe, to us today as well. And so um, John's point here is not... Uh, is not a workspace salvation. We've continued to make that point, but it's, um, it's nonetheless the radical importance of putting our faith into action, of putting our love to, to move from the head uh, and the heart out through the hands to be family members who carry the family resemblance, who look at Jesus the way he laid down his life for us and are motivated to lay down our lives for others, even when it costs us in our pocketbook to see a brother in need, to say, I have the means and I'm gonna step up and help you, even as it disadvantages me, even as it costs me something tangible and practical. Um, and to see that Jesus isn't just concerned about Uh, humanity in the abstract, but individuals and people in Particular where it gets harder to love and he's not just concerned about the massive sort of things like murder or whatever uh, But but the small instances of your heart He is interested in transforming every aspect of this world and friends. He's going to do it Um, He's going to do it the work begins now working through his spirit poured out in his people Uh, and so the things we do in the here and now they really matter but we know that it ultimately doesn't come in full until he returns that one great last day to set all things right and to bring about um, his kingdom in its fullness and that will be good news for our world but may we be a foretaste of that now may we be a foretaste of that now for anyone who has the eyes to see that they would no longer say, yeah, I like Jesus, but I don't like his people. Uh, to the degree that they don't like us, may that be the degree to which they don't like Jesus, fairly and accurately. Amen? All right. Well, Dora of Hope Northeast, I love you. Uh, it's an honor to be with you this morning, and uh, I trust that we could be this kind of community this week, this month, this year, in this entire life.